I would be surprised if more than 20 or 30% of the Bitcoin billionaires are known publicly. I think there's a bunch of them that we, we have no idea who they are. And I think that's a good thing. Increasingly, as we get hyper-Bitcoinization and people start using sats more, it's really addictive to zap people, you know, that in, in Noster, you just like flick someone like a little bit of money. You're talking about 1% of a dollar cent or something like that's how small you can go. It's, it's very fun to have social media that is very seamlessly integrated with money is almost like a new experience. And to be able to have that without the government leaning over you and deciding that, oh no, your social credit score is too low. Now you, you're not allowed to buy the music anymore, or whatever it is that, that you, you're not allowed to do. To have that freedom, I think, is going to be infectious. The Blockware Marketplace is super cool. Basically, Mason's firm already helps investors and institutional investors on Wall Street get into Bitcoin mining with his giant data centers, but he wanted to make it even easier for the average person to get into this. So now with the Blockware Marketplace, with the click of a button, you can buy your own Bitcoin miner from the comfort of your own home and have it instantly start mining for you straight into a Bitcoin wallet of your choosing. On the Blockware Marketplace, you can see a bunch of miners for sale, you can see what the miner is, the price, the data center location that the miner is located in, the hash rate, the estimated revenue you're going to be making based on the current price of Bitcoin and stuff, and there are miners in all price ranges listed on there right now. Once you see a miner you want to look into more, simply click on it, and then you can see the serial number, how long it's been online for, you can see charts of the miner's historical performance, and once you're ready to buy a miner, simply click buy, follow the instructions, and then that miner that is already online in their data center will be instantly assigned to you. And that's it. You are now mining Bitcoin, getting all the benefits of mining without ever having to do any of the setup or maintenance yourself. So go to marketplace.blockwaresolutions.com to take a peek at all the miners that are listed for sale right now. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. This week I have on Tour Demister. Tour, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Of course, glad to have you. Uh, I want to jump right into it. On Twitter, I saw Adam Back made a bet that Bitcoin would hit 100k by the 2024 having what are your thoughts crazy not crazy yeah i don't think it's crazy i don't think it's crazy it's a, it's a bit of a it's also the thing is the big thing that we need to that needs to happen is bitcoin needs to break above like 42,000 ish like we need to break out of that range um and then and then it's more likely that it's off to the races so so to me, the big pivotal moment is going to be that, like, when do we actually break out of this range? And then from there, um, it can either go super fast or it can go like reasonably fast. But I don't think it's crazy. I think that there is just so many macro wins that are that are positioned correctly. And also um, so many new buyers coming into the Bitcoin market. Uh, also... There's a lot of noise that has disappeared out of the market, which is, um, you know, the crypto stuff, like all the altcoins, all the, I mean, who who even talks about, um, I forget, even forget the name, but the, the, the gifts that people were selling each other. Um, um, I don't know why I can't think of it. Um, the the JPEG markets that we had and like NFTs. Or... Sorry. Yeah, exactly. Like who even talks <laughs> about NFTs anymore? 
So yeah, like I think that um, there is more clarity, and so that means that there's less options, right? Bitcoin is the thing. Bitcoin is what it, where it's all happening. Um, so yeah, I'm just super bullish, um, and I'm so anyway. It's a bit of a coin toss whether whether that how that bet is going to work out. But um, but Adam has actually a good feel for the markets. I definitely uh, would not bet against him. Yeah, that's why you know I don't necessarily like discussing like specific price calls but it was from adam back who's like you know pretty well respected name in the bitcoin world obviously so i thought it was interesting that he did something like that i don't remember him doing something like that in the past saying a specific price by a specific time yeah he's happy to take take a bet here or there he, you know you're right he hasn't done that often um but yeah he's been uh he's been trading since he was a uh, in college like he's uh people don't know this they always see him as like kind of like the more academic uh type guy but he, um, yeah, he's, he's, he's good. He's a good market operator. Yeah. Very cool. I, I saw mm. you also, you, you tweeted something interesting that I definitely agree with that. I don't think a lot of people outside the Bitcoin space agree, understand maybe, but, or even inside the Bitcoin space per se, but you said, I work to be psychologically prepared for the extremes in Bitcoin. I guess, what did you mean by that and why? Yeah. I mean, I just think it's preparation is so important psychologically because we are social animals and we we respond to our environment and um, it's easy to sit here in your chair and be like, oh, when Bitcoin, whatever, hits 200,000, I'm going to do X, Y, Z and um, basically telling yourself i'm going to do all the right things i'm going to make all the right moves i'm going to sell sell at the top and buy at the bottom but what is hard to take into account is the the general atmosphere of all the people around us like people in the street people online people on tv and uh, that impacts us hugely and that's why it's so hard to do the right thing when the time is there to do it and so that's why, for me, preparation is really key because you've got to kind of brace yourself to go against the tide, to buy at the lows and to maybe lighten up a bit or sell at the at the tops. And of course, you can never directly nail it, but you want to... And again, oh, so you, 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 first of all, you can't directly nail it. You might not even want to do those things. Like even just the buy and hold, it might be good to be prepared for the volatility so that you don't panic sell or, um, you know, you don't um, basically get shaken out, right, um, of your positions. Uh, or if you, you know, if you're bullish on the, on the on the top side of the cycle that you don't load up on debt, right, that you don't um, over leverage, for example, in times like that. Yeah, I definitely completely agree. I mean, I feel like it's critical that you be prepared for both more downside and more upside than you expect. Because you want to be a buyer of last resort if Bitcoin just wicks super low, like something like March 2020. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, exactly. Or again, or not to panic, because if you're panicking in that time, the consequences are way bigger, right? Than if you panic, sell the same dollar amount at any other time. Um so, um, yeah, I forgot if I was going to say more. Yeah, mm. no, I think that was perfect. Mm. You also reminded me of, of, uh, just being prepared and like getting or getting caught in the moment when Bitcoin's in like a massive bull cycle. I think Pierre Richard, who I'm a huge fan of, 
um, and think he does, does a lot of great work for Bitcoin. But I remember in the past, he said like in 2013 and 2017, like he thought like hyper Bitcoinization was like pretty much here and right around the corner. And obviously it wasn't quite yet, but, uh, pretty funny to think it's even, even it's very easy for Bitcoiners to get caught up during the bull cycle. Yeah, myself included. no, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Pierre's a legend, and uh, and uh, and and and, but like nobody's immune. Nobody's immune to the, these emotional, emotional highs. And uh, and the cool thing is though that we have this great community, and we can just uh, you know learn from each other and and uh, keep our heads cool when uh, when when we probably need to be. Definitely, hundred um, percent. I kind of want to hear. So I know you've been involved with Bitcoin for quite some time. It'd be awesome to hear about like the early days of Bitcoin for someone that got in, you know, mm -hmm. 2020 or this past bull cycle, they've only seen Bitcoin from what it is today. What was the early days of Bitcoin? What was it like? Yeah, it's a little, it's, um, I'm trying to find like kind of analogies or something. Um, I mean, probably if I had to compare it, I would have to come up with an example of today, 2023, something that's really niche and that is not like that you and I, you might not even know what it is. If I bring it up, it's like, Oh, it's like this, right? It, it, because the internet was also still a little bit different back then, like 2011, 2010, like social media was there. It was, you know, Twitter existed. I think I got my Twitter account in 2011 or something, but it was very small. Um, so, so it's weird. Like, you know, the, the, the phenomena online were sometimes smaller and then the platforms where people would share them on, like that would be like forums and stuff. Forums were really big. If you go to Bitcoin Talk, you can actually travel in time. If you go to Bitcoin Talk and you find some of the older threads and actually um, also uh, like the, the Nakamoto Institute, which Pierre has articles on and uh, uh, Michael Goldstein has, has done a phenomenal job gathering all that stuff. So there's a lot of forum threads where Satoshi himself was also active on in 2009-10-11. Um, so yeah, very, very, um, it, it was definitely a global phenomenon. I mean, it was more like the tech countries, you know, there's definitely engineers from the UK, from the US, uh, some Israeli involvement early on even, um, the Netherlands, like people that were strong
Swedish VPN provider. So he was just running a little tech company and then he was interested in Bitcoin on the side. I think already then you had like localbitcoins.com, which was like a peer-to-peer website. It's like a way to find somebody else who wants to buy Bitcoin in person and then you go meet in a Starbucks. So those guys were already online. And then like Max Kaiser was there. He was one of the, oh, actually, yeah, he was there. So that was one of the only other like kind of, you know, non-pure technical people um so what, yeah what it's just a kind of a hodgepodge it? like libertarian uh you could buy like the little casasius coins for like 20 bucks you could they're now worth like fifty thousand dollars or something um <laughs> uh, sorry you were saying i was just gonna say like what time period exactly was like this first conference and so all era? that is 2012 yeah i i okay. first learned about bitcoin 2011 i interviewed some people i started publishing some research but then my first actual event was 2012 um and then 2013 is when you had like the first 1000 people conference in silicon valley like that was kind of like people were talking about that like mm, maybe maybe this is going to be like those very early internet conferences where you know a lot of things came together and so, and then from 2014 is when it, we had the bubble to a thousand dollars. So then, like a lot more people came in. But yeah, there's for, like Barry Silbert and and some of the name like the Winklevi, they came in and like the, actually no, they already spoke at 2013. Those guys are early too. Um, but yeah, just a very very small scene and a very amicable. You know, if if. To give an idea, like if any one of your listeners is involved with Noster, with like the new social media platform, which is, it's not a company, right? It's just a protocol. Uh, I, that kind of energy where there's lots of collaboration and enthusiasm and there's no like, there's no like bitter wars or, you know, it's just like people having fun and, and excited for what's, what's to come. Nice. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Noster's. Pretty cool. Pretty interesting. I'm curious, like, what are your thoughts on that? Do you, do you see Noster really gaining some serious traction? I feel like it did for a small amount of time and then Twitter like came back and everyone, a lot of people went back to Twitter, but what do you, what do you think? I mean, yeah, I, somebody, I, I feel like something's happening. I, I do think something's happening. I think that on the one hand, social media is um, becoming very, just, I mean, obviously it always was centralized, but now we're entering an era of more censorship in general. Like it's almost like we're having a replay of the 1980s or the 1940s uh, in, in, the, in the world at large, more censorship. Uh, but now, so increasingly we do have these tools of peer-to-peer -peer communication and, um, and uh, censorship resistant tools. So it does make sense to me that um, those tools are going to get better and better. And maybe also we'll have companies that start helping, you know, operate these things so that just how like you could uh, download a, a very, like I remember first torrenting files as a college student in like 2003, four using BitTorrent. And it was very complicated you had to like do research and like tweak settings in your computer and it was all kind of uh pretty grassroots and there, there was only one or two or three different clients whereas now if you want to torrent it's just like three clicks of the mouse and you know you're up and running like it's not rocket science at all so i think that that kind of future where you have um 
kind of a shadow economy. Like there'll be like, oh, the official social media where you can do all the politically correct stuff. And then if you really want to, you know, dig in or you have some kind of esoteric interest, then then maybe you're, you're going to use um, that other, the those other platforms. And then increasingly, as we get hyper-Bitcoinization and people start using sats more, it's really addictive to zap people, you know, that in, in Noster, you just like flick someone like a little bit of money. Like, I mean, you're talking about one, one percent of a dollar cent or something like that's how small you can go. It's, it's very fun. Um, and so, yeah, to have social media that is very seamlessly integrated with money is almost like a new experience, you know, and to be able to have that without, the government, you know, leaning over you and deciding that, oh, no, your social credit score is too low. Now you you're not allowed to buy the music anymore or whatever it is that that you, you're not allowed to do to have, you know, that freedom, I think, is going to be infectious. It's a good point. Yeah, I mean, I guess the way that I've thought about it is it's nice to have a backup now that if Twitter for some reason got completely compromised and went full on out censorship, especially like for Bitcoiners or for whoever. Now we, ha we have a backup that we can go to and still communicate with each other. Yeah. And there's a parallel there, right? Where Bitcoin already is the backup for the financial system. And so, yeah, Noster, I think, and who knows, maybe, maybe some other protocol as well is, um, is going to be that backup for the official white collar internet, so to speak. Mm. Yeah, it's a good point. I guess another question that I had going back to the early conference days or Bitcoin in 2012 or so is was, was that like a big portion of the community or like the quote unquote holders back then? Like, were they very actively involved in going to conferences or were they, or was a lot of the, the coins just like held by random people all throughout the world that weren't really doing anything in person at the time? I've always suspected that even in the early days, there's a, a large amount of people that never go to social events and uh, that are just in the background that work, like, you know, use pseudonyms um, that just live their life and that have, um, for whatever reason, have a, a, a attached great value to privacy. Maybe they already have a family with kids and they, you know, or maybe they live in a country where they could be, t that's often the case. Like for Americans, it's something that is, I think often underestimated how rare it is to feel as safe as you do in the US, having property, showing that you have property, talking about it, whatever. Um, if you live in Brazil or Russia or, you know, who knows where, uh, it, it, it's, it's front and for front and center thinking about, okay, if I talk about this, can I be a target? And for a lot of people, they, they decide, no, it's not worth it. I'm going to be discreet. Um, and so, yeah, I, I know people that have never, that are wealthy and that have never, um, expose themselves by talking about it on social media like with things attached to their name that always like you know communicate in pseudonyms um so yeah i i feel like there's a maybe even today you know we know for a fact there are bitcoin billionaires we know but just by the numbers running the numbers like by you know you know by how the coins are distributed but i i, I would be surprised if more than 20 or 30% of the Bitcoin billionaires are known publicly. 
I think there's a bunch of them that we we have no idea who they are, and I think that's a good thing. Yeah, mm. that's all. It's crazy to think about. On that note of pseudonyms, and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but have you always been public with your persona and your thoughts in the Bitcoin world, or have you been private and used pseudonyms in the past? Hey everyone, this week I want to talk about Stamp Seed. This is very cool metal plate where you can literally stamp your Bitcoin seed phrase with this hammer that they sell you into this metal plate. This is a must have for all Bitcoin holders. If you have taken self custody of your Bitcoin, you wanna make sure you've recorded your seed phrase on something that is fireproof, waterproof, and time resistant. This is a great product for Bitcoiners who have taken self custody and want that extra level of security and resiliency to store their Bitcoin. So if you are interested in this product, definitely check out stampseed.com. Use code BLOCKWARE15 for 15% off the entire website. Well, if I had, <laughs> I, would I say that? <laughs> exactly. Uh, no, but um, but uh, I'm, I don't know why. I think uh, because I was... I already was an analyst. I already had a public profile as an analyst uh, doing my newsletter. Um, I never, and I didn't really grow up in that culture of like um, cryptography and cypherpunks. Like I, I was more like the libertarian world where people don't use that many pseudonyms. Like if you're, cause my, my, my uh, specialization was economics and the business cycle. And so that's just more an academic setting. So it's more like, it was almost already too late. Once I was out, uh, I was kind of like, "Yeah, let's just keep going." Um, well, I'll just, I'll just move myself to a safer place rather than try to reverse engineer uh, being being public. And so, yeah, that's why I live in Texas. Yeah, nice, very cool. Um, it also like this conversation of privacy and mm. pseudonymity reminded me of Trace Mare, who went dark for debatable reasons, I guess, but. Do you think that over time we could see more Bitcoiners follow in the steps of something like Trace Bear? Not that not doing some Mimblewimble coin shill or, or whatnot, <laughs> but uh, just kind of like going off, you know, being prolific podcasters or Twitter personalities and just all of a sudden just disappearing. I guess Nick Zabo has kind of done that to some extent. Yeah, you know, I think so. I think, you know, sometimes people life people's life just changes. You know, they... They start having different priorities. Um, they the, the trade off the might work out differently all of a sudden. Um, also, I mean, honestly, we have seen a lot more leanings toward canceling people and censor censoring and suing. You know, all these lawsuits like with Craig Wright, for example, like really ugly stuff. Um, so we we first saw some people go off the radar back in. 2016, I would say, is when the block size wars started heating up and there were some really very nasty threats exchanged. And all of a sudden, that like amicable atmosphere turned very ugly. And then for some people, it's no longer worth it. And they might still contribute to Bitcoin or be involved in, in all kinds of ways because it's it's becoming a big world now. Uh, but there's different ways to do that than you know to put out tweets and reports and stuff. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. On that note of the block size war and you being around since 2012, how has like 
the narratives or your view of Bitcoin evolved over the years? Because I would imagine I've said this before on on podcasts and talking to people that like when I first read read about Bitcoin, it was the Nakamoto Institute, and I was like, this makes a lot of sense, but it's just some like random blog on the internet that I don't really. It's not like you know in Bloomberg or some like academic peer reviewed paper, and so over time the education and like research I feel like has gotten much better. But from your perspective, you know, like what resources were there in 2012? And then I guess probably the lack of resources, did that, you know, make your vision or or your view of Bitcoin change over, you know, the next 10 plus years? Yeah, you're right. I mean, it would have been amazing if, if like the Nakamoto Institute was there early on. It's, it's a it's a fantastic first place to land if you're new. You know, I, um, I'd be curious to hear how how you ran into that, um, and um, and 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 also beyond that, like there's so there's so many great books nowadays. Like there wasn't there was zero books back then, um, and um, there was zero like educators. Uh, you really had to just go talk to the engineers directly. Um, the Bitcoin talk, like I remember spending a lot of time, I mean, I have some posts there, but very, I didn't feel like I had much to contribute. I would just read a lot. Um, and then what would be very helpful is just to go to an event and, and talk to people in person and, and get a bit of a feel for, cause even back then it was, there were some crazy people where maybe they were well-meaning, but they, you couldn't always rely on their ideas or, you know, how they saw things. So you just had to, there wasn't really a shortcut. You had to just really drink from the fire hose and try to take in as much as possible. And, and I mean, there would have been a shortcut had I been like a, a security researcher, you know, like a real hardcore uh, coder, um, uh, somebody like um, uh, Dan Kaminsky or something like a, like a, you know, somebody who really knows all the vectors of cyber attacks and and because then you can look at the code and and see for yourself like wow this is like this is you know built like a nuclear power plant like this is really really solid uh so i always had to go and try to identify people like dan to then you know so that just took a lot more digging to to make sure i'm not just in some dead end of somebody who talks about themselves like they're important but actually whose opinion is not that that valuable um but yeah so i was lucky for example early on i did an interview with peter Wehle, who who uh you know has to this day contributes to bitcoin um and who was a core developer even back in 2011 so he he explained some basics to me and then you know i started following him on there was a what's it called not substack but um that place where uh, stack overflow i think that place where coders go with questions yeah I think it's Stack Overflow. So he, mm-hmm. he answered like 300 questions about Bitcoin and those are also still online. So those kind of places were, were really helpful for people like me where, yeah, you just had simple questions like uh, how does the difficulty get adjusted or, you know, all these questions that we all have around how Bitcoin works. Yeah, I think there's like a Bitcoin specific like stack. It's like Stack Exchange or Stack Stack Overflow, and like those are some really good technical answers to some pretty interesting questions. That and so nor- some of those answers are ten years old and they're still great. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, hmm. That's cool. Yeah, and I guess for your topic on Nakamoto Institute, I found it. I think just DMing Pierre Richard back in 2017 when I first heard about Bitcoin kept 
kept badgering him and he was like, go read this, go read this. And I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, I'm, I'm, that's amazing. Cause that's such a, it just cuts through so much of the noise. It's so well curated. Uh, and also more and more, I feel like almost in every domain, there is so much value in just studying the beginnings of something, of a movement, of a philosophy, of a even of a an individual author. Like if you kind of understand where they come from, everything falls into place so much easier than if you're you're just you know there. There's a lot of noise today, but how do you separate signal from noise? And it's like, well, early on there was probably more signal because there was less money involved. Um, so yeah, like they're like Hal Finney and the early cypherpunks, like reading their stuff. I think people are not going to stop doing that. Yeah. Great points. Um, I'm curious if, if, so again, like some people listening to this may be relatively new to Bitcoin. And, and one thing that I like about over time is like, we've developed more clear and concise narratives, kind of like we're talking about as to like, what's the value proposition of Bitcoin. So I'm curious for, how would you explain to someone that, you know, still thinks Bitcoin is some sort of bubble or, or Ponzi scheme? How would you explain Bitcoin to them in a very clear and concise way? I probably first ask, why do you think it's a bubble or a Ponzi scheme? Because there's people come from different angles. Like, have you ran into any anyone recently who had like a, a reason? I would say it's more just people see Bitcoin and they're like, why is it worth $30,000 today? And what's the real value? Like they don't necessarily see, like I think of like something like a house, oh, I can live in a house or whatever, mm -hmm. or uh, equity, it produces future cash flows. Bitcoin doesn't produce future cash flows. So like, why does it have value? That's, yeah. I think yeah, that's yeah. something that I've heard. Yeah, exactly. That's a common one. Yeah, or like Warren Buffett, who's like, oh, I can, you know, he said that about gold. It's like, I could put all the gold in the world together in a big pile and, and fondle it, you know, I can, I can touch it. And then I can bury it in the ground. And, you know, it's not worth anything. And and then the, the answer there is, well, the reason why gold, you could say the same thing about, um, sorry, just, uh, you could, you could make the same argument, and immediately it would be ridiculous about cell phones and be like, I could pile all the cell phones in the world on a big pile and I could fondle it and then bury it in the ground. And like, what would it be worth? You know, it's like, well, the, the, the values in the network is that it's a way to connect for a lot of people. And the same with gold. Like if you gather it all in one place, you're removing the network, which is the, what it's all about. And so similar with Bitcoin, the cool thing is that it's, it's like gold, but it's digital. And so you have a network where you can exchange scarcity uh, online without being able uh, to be stopped, like we not with zero censorship, and um, and that's the exciting thing about Bitcoin is that um, the borderlessness, the censorship resistance, the provable scarcity. Um, by now, we have fourteen years of track record, and I always say, you know, the people who built Bitcoin are the people who built some of the most uh, valuable internet technologies that we have seen. BitTorrent, um, pretty good privacy. Um, um, uh, uh, um, I'm trying to think. There's uh, 
some other encryption stuff that is used all the time online and uh people have contributed significantly to things like linux and stuff that 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 are now in the bitcoin world so so this is just all a part of the same story and um yeah we we have um 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 the the packages on the internet like the, the basic tcp ip protocol and then bitcoin is just money on the internet like that's just another protocol that we needed and it's a it's a difficult thing to figure out and so that's why it came later than the mainstream internet yeah i think a lot of people that have a have trouble understanding bitcoin don't really question like what money is also to begin with they like I, i've seen some people say like oh bitcoin is only worth like what someone else is willing to pay for it i'm like yeah, congrats. Like that's, that's what money is, you know, <laughs> it's just exchanging a tool or a good itself. And that, that tool or good itself is what is the money to begin with. Yeah. Recently I saw, um, Harari that, that the author who wrote the book Sapiens, he's like, um, an Israeli, I don't even know if he's an anthropologist. Maybe he is. Um, so maybe historian. So, so he was talking about, Oh, basically money is just a story. And so money could be anything. It could be shells. It could be, you know, like these digital tokens. It could be, um, and to me, that is degrading what money really is. Because of course, yes, there is convention involved. Like there is a kind of a consensus involved, which you could call a story. But um, over history, we've seen that there are very specific properties that people converge towards like scarcity divisibility like all these properties that vj has written so brilliantly about in his um the bullish case for bitcoin uh vj boyapati um and we just see that over and over and over and and that's for good reason because all those characteristics make for better money and of course temporarily sometimes uh we we make trade-offs uh for example the last 70 to 100 years the world has globalized enormously and we were stuck with that system of um, gold-backed currencies which which has a real problem where you store gold-backed currencies in a vault and then there's a war that happens and you gotta quickly ship the gold overseas and then it's stuck there and then all of a sudden all the political incentives start to change because one guy has all the gold and the rest doesn't have it anymore and and so and so that's why they switched to a fiat system so that you would have more flexibility uh with that rapid globalization but now we're stuck with the inflation anyway it's a long story but it was basically a compromise made and um but so harari would say like oh no but it's just you know it could be anything and and that is not true that's the same as saying like a mathematical proof is just a story it's like well no you could it has a beginning and an end so maybe you could call it a story but but to say it's just a story is kind of ridiculous so that's how i feel about money yeah 100 percent. i mean it also goes into safedine's idea of bitcoin is more like gunpowder it's just objectively a better money that now exists because of its unique properties and you ignoring it or not believing in the story doesn't mean that the story doesn't exist or the new tool doesn't exist like it exists and you better figure out gunpowder if someone just discovered gunpowder 
Exactly. There's a, there's a truth there and you can ignore the truth that is gunpowder, but it's at your own peril to ignore it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So on that note of ignoring Bitcoin, we've seen El Salvador not ignore Bitcoin. Do you think other nation states are going to follow El Salvador and adopt Bitcoin? Yeah, eventually. I think in the short term, it seems like there aren't very many that are gearing up to announcing anything big. Um, there's not a lot of polit politicians right now that are as radical as uh, Bukele is. Um, but on the sidelines, there's a lot and they want to get elected and they're going to run for office. And so we're going to see a lot of Bitcoin elections, I think, uh, over the next um, five to 10 years. And uh, depending on the outcome of those elections, policies are going to change. But I don't believe that there's many existing governments that are like ready to, you know, and, and who knows, because politicians love to walk in front of a parade and wave the flag and, you know, kind of, but they, they want to see a parade first. And so if we get an, another huge rally in Bitcoin, maybe combined with a government bond crash or whatever, you know, that parade is going to grow a lot. And so who knows, maybe even existing uh, government might start singing a different song, but that's to be seen. What do, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. Like, what do you think comes first? Do you think the price just naturally rises due to like increasing scarcity over time? And then we see, you know, the Michael Saylor, the El Salvador's come in, or do you think it's more of like, the other way around where Michael Saylor comes in, then the price rises. How do you see the dynamic of like people coming in versus price, natural price appreciation because it's the best money causing people to come in and pay attention? How do you think about that? I mean, I think generally speaking, you could say there are, there is smart money and then there is more like retail money. Uh, and so the smart money tends to be leading by definition, like they, they are forward thinking, they, they have smart friends, they, you know, they try to understand the world and then, and then make wise investments based on that understanding. So I think that's maybe where more the, the organ, the organic properties of Bitcoin shine because, because like the way I'm explaining, or you and I explain Bitcoin to our friends that that can start to make sense to them at some point, right? I mean, people sometimes need many, many conversations before the, the penny drops. Uh, and then as the as the price goes up, I think then retail is more sensitive to just price signal. Like they, to them, it's like, uh, you know, the neuron is firing and like, oh, something's happening. I need to pay attention. And, and then you have a lot of influencers who do the job of like, you know, spreading the signal through, through the, the network that is the global economy. So price is very important. Price really cr creates that momentum. Um, but I do think that early, the reason why we don't go below a certain level in the bear market, well, that's the value investors. Those are the ones that are really trying to analyze it and, and, and be like, I don't care about a two-year time horizon. I'm investing for the next 10, 20, 30 years. So, so they put in the bottom. 100%. What do you think is needed or not needed for the next wave of adoption like is it inevitable is is it just a matter of time until we see like another having less sellers on the network and price starts drifting up and then we get the retail coming in or is there 
does there need to be some sort of catalyst that moves Bitcoin higher? I I think not. It's like it's kind of like it's like a, there's a forest and it's so dry and there's so much dry shrubs and it's kind of like yeah, we've been waiting for this like giant bolt of lightning to come out of the sky like and to hit like right in the big oak tree that's in the middle, you know, like yeah, you know, that could do it. But there's so many ways in which the forest could catch fire. Um so to me it's like it's 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 just I don't, I don't know, a prophecy waiting to be fulfilled, you know, it's just ready. It's ready to go. And we just need a, a few sparks here and there, and they can come from many directions. So it, that's why, why predicting the cycle is so hard, right? Because the, sh the shrubs are already dry. And so to, to try and pretend to know when the spark is going to happen and from where it's going to come, I think that's you can't do that that's that's um you, that's where you got to be humble and just look at the charts try to you know do some blockchain analysis and and look at resistance levels and and try to see like okay this this point is where momentum would really start kicking in and, and you get that flip from smart money to retail um but but yeah you can't go far beyond that yeah on that topic of dry shrubs and kind of kindle for the for the bull run i i always try to think of like the bear markets as like creating the dry shrubs, like just eliminating all of the weak hands and just having it to where there's not much sell pressure on the network mm -hmm. moving forward. Do you think like going forward after we have another wave of adoption, do you think there will be another just deep strenuous bear market or will we may maybe see Bitcoin's volatility not be as extreme? I think there's still going to be some kind of bear market um, just because it's us. Like we, we are, you know, the flesh is weak and <laughs> we're going to get over, over excited at the top of the next cycle. Or once we go past a certain point and there'll be leverage and there'll be, you know, crazy fraudulent companies that are supposedly building on Bitcoin, like with the railway boom in the, in the 1800s, right? There was like, yeah, the railways are real, but the bubble was built on top of something real. So there's so much, so many scams, right? And then that kind of creates a disillusionment after. And so I think that there's not, there's never a straight line just because we're, we're emotional creatures. And so, um, but, 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 but that said, you know, in dollar terms, you know, or in fiat terms, once inflation is really high, maybe the cycles will really happen, but it'll be more like it'll be flat in dollars for a while. And then, you know, people will there'll be a bubble in something else. Like people will be like, ah, be crazy about copper mines and like there'll be a copper mine bubble and or or AI is actually gonna have a bubble and then, you know. So so yeah, I don't I don't think the bubbles are gonna stop. Um but I I do think it's in a way it's a little bit moot to think about it now because the world changes with with the price going up, right? If Bitcoin does ten X from here or a hundred X, we're talking about a different world. And so it's like I wanna have Bitcoin to be afloat in that new world and then decide what I'm gonna do there. Right. And then if we crash from 400,000 down to 150,000. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. See, I, I can decide then what I'm going to do. 
Yeah, that's fair. I mm-hmm. I agree that I don't think the bear markets are going to go away. I think if we go to some crazy number, we're probably going to go back down to some also crazy number. Yeah, the only thing is like, what do you express it in? Like, because uh, I mean, yeah. the dollar at some point is still going to stop making sense. Uh, at least the dollar as we know it today. Like they, in in the in the fiat world, they always come up with like they do rebrands and then they'll be like, oh, but now it's back. So so who knows what 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 what's going to be the next incarnation? But yeah. But this dollar, I'm not very positive on. Mm. Agreed. It's fair. Um, last question, then we can go ahead and wrap it up. Tell us a little bit about some of the research that you're putting out with your firm. <laughs> and I know we co- probably covered a good bit of the, the content already, but tell us about what you've been doing with Adamant Research. Yeah, I can't be very specific, but I can say that I'm working on some things for a global audience, um, things that have to do with um, the global macro picture with investing, um, but also with some some ideas that relate to how is the world going to change because of Bitcoin and with Bitcoin, um, which I just enjoy thinking about. And uh, I don't really know. I don't know where that conversation is going to lead, but I, I it, it just strikes me as as both important and fun and also i think that there is a kind of it's a weird thing with investing where sometimes if you too strenuously focus on it at least for me and it then it stops being fun and when it stops being fun it actually is less profitable it's a very weird thing and so it's like if you kind of be playful and and you're more loose and it's just a part of what you're doing and sometimes you're like weirdly distracted from it like you don't look at it for a while and then all of a sudden you run into like a great you go to a an event that has nothing to do with investing and you run into the next great idea um because if you just chase around a certain theme you you might end up being in a in your own little bubble right because you know if, if you only talk to the same kind of people over and over um so anyway i just um both for my own entertainment, but also because I've experienced it as enriching and uh, and kind of there's a just a fun cross fertilization. I've always not censored myself from venturing into other areas, and so I'll be writing about that stuff too. Um, so just long story short, I'm I'm slowly making my way back to long form writing, um, and it'll be for a global audience, and it'll involve Bitcoin, but not be exclusively about Bitcoin. Awesome. Yeah, well, I will Mm. definitely look forward to reading some of that stuff. I think it will be interesting to see Mm. what happens, you know, if Bitcoin does become global money, things will change so much, whether it's like governments, economics, society itself. I I definitely agree that not enough people are thinking about like, what if we're actually right here? Yeah, and also, you know, it's so when you when you learn in school or you read about these like glorious periods of the past, like you know the the ancient Greeks or the Renaissance or all these periods, you kind of assume like, oh, that time must have been like everyone is comfortable and um, and uh, somehow there's all this wealth, and so it must have been like an extremely stable period. And then you actually read about it, it's like, no, 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 there was so much upheaval in those periods. So so I think that it's exciting for me to to see this coming few decades as the beginning of a renaissance, you know? 
and uh and 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 just to see it as something that i'm incredibly privileged to be able to witness and maybe take part in in some small way um but so yeah it doesn't have to be either we have chaos in the world or we have an incredible renaissance like i think those things can happen at the same time and i'm here for it <laughs> nice yeah i love that that's i completely agree with what you just said that's awesome um but Tour, thanks so much for coming on. Where can the audience go learn more about you, Adamant Research, or anything you want to share? Yeah, just you know, Google my name. My Twitter will show up. And then adamantresearch.com is my website. Awesome. Well, Tour, thank you so much. This was awesome.